Good morning. You guys excited to be in church this morning? Okay, just a few of you. I'm gonna tell you a quick story. It's hunting season. If you guys have made it to the woods, good, good. Glad, guys and gals, get out in the woods. It's good for your soul. We were out in the woods last weekend and Abby and I were bow hunting and uh, we, were, we were sitting in a wonderfully strategic spot and there was no action within the first 30 minutes or so. And uh, so naturally, what do we begin to do? We began to, uh, to read and uh, the good uh, hunters, the skilled hunters in tune with nature that we are, we read and kept reading and kept reading. And after, I don't know actually how much time passed, I looked up and we had four does standing about 20 yards uh, in front of us, staring at us going, hey, are you here for any reason at all? Or are you just gonna keep reading your book. And so we responded and said, no, hang on just a second. Let her get our stuff together. And anyway, uh, so some of you guys are coming to church like that. I'm just saying some of you, uh, you didn't see that coming, did you? You thought you were, you thought you were going to laugh at me and my poor hunting skill, but some of y'all come to church reading a book, uh, and not ready for the hunt. I'm just telling you, wake up. It is church this morning. It is Sunday. It is our day to come together and celebrate all that God has done. And I hope that you're ready for that. I'm right. We're working on it. We're working on it. Some of y'all still reading. Okay, we're going to go in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. Exodus 7. And quick reminder, if you do not have a copy of Scripture that you can take home and dive into and highlight and underline and all that fun stuff, uh, we would love to send you home with a copy of God's Word. If you will make your way to the Resource Center, which is right out either one of these double doors, you'll find it over there. We would love to, uh, to send you home with a copy of Scripture. But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. And here's the deal. We're going to do 7 through 12 over the next few weeks, okay? Uh, but the way that we're going to do this, there's a lot of different ways that we could go through these uh, chapters. This is, the, this is the portion in the narrative where we're going to go over the plagues. So uh, there's a lot here. And instead of going one by one by one and covering each plague individually, what we're going to do is we're going to try to back away from all of them. We're going to get a summary of what each plague is. And then what we're going to do is we're going to try and step back Back and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the themes that are present within the plagues because I think that it's taking that step back and seeing them as a whole that is going to be really helpful to us in understanding what is going on uh, here and why God is working in the way in which he is. And look, I'm just going to tell you, these are not easy verses. This is not the kind of stuff that you, if you want to uh, cuddle up when the, when the cold weather comes and, and open your Bible and read through this and get warm fuzzies. These are not the pages for you. This is really tough stuff. And we're not going to avoid that. Uh, we don't avoid the hard things here, uh, but I'm just going to tell you, there's going to be some really tough stuff that we're going to try and lean into and gain some understanding uh, over, over the next couple of weeks. So what we're going to do is we're going to tackle the first nine plagues over the next two weeks. And then we're going to have for the 10th plague, we're going to have one standalone week where that's what we're going to, uh, going to work through. So let me just do this. Let me just take you through from seven through 11, chapter seven through 11. Let me just take you through each one of these plagues. So Whitney just read for us that this is the time is now. There's there's gonna be a confrontation and now it's beginning between uh, Moses and Aaron and they're gonna to speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf and, and tell Pharaoh what is coming because he will not relent and let the children of Israel go. 
And so here it begins. If you'll go to chapter seven, verse 14, you're gonna see where the plagues begin. And the first one is that God says that he is going to turn the waters in Egypt. More specifically, he says the Nile and, and everything that surrounds it to blood. And so at the command of Moses and Aaron, the Nile turns to blood. And it says that the fish in the, uh, the fish die in the Nile, that, it, that, that all of the water becomes, toxic and Pharaoh does not at this point he sees all that happens and does not relent scripture says that his heart was hard and we're going to go over that theme uh, next week but he does not relent he doesn't respond the second plague you can see is in chapter 8 and verse 1 and it's a plague of frogs and so when Pharaoh doesn't relent at the at the water that Moses and Aaron say there are going to be frogs a mass of frogs that are going to come out from the water and are going to literally take over and so uh, Pharaoh uh, doesn't relent, but it says that the frogs come into their homes. It gets literally in their kitchens, right? The fl- frogs are everywhere. And certain ones of us are gonna respond differently to each ones of these plagues, but each of them is overwhelming in nature. But it's at this point, Pharaoh says, actually, this is the second plague. And Pharaoh says, okay, fine, go. Remember the demand is what God, what Moses has asked is that the children of Israel be allowed to leave and take a journey into the wilderness in order to worship Yahweh. And so Pharaoh here actually says, fine, that's fine. Go. The frogs are, apparently he hit his limit there at frogs and says, go, and then changes his mind. And this is going to be a theme. Pharaoh's going to do this over and over and over again. And so then the third plague, you can see that at 816, the third plague is the plague of gnats. Now, it's interesting here that up to this point in the first two plagues, Scripture says, excuse me, that Pharaoh has uh, in, his, uh, in, in his kingdom, there are, there are what's called magicians or sorcerers. Now we don't know tons and tons and tons about them or what these practices were. We know there was sorcery and idolatry going on in Egypt and that there was the worship of, of a lot of different gods. But it says at this point in the first two plagues with blood and frogs, that the, that the magicians were duplicating what it was that Moses and Aaron were doing. Now, we don't get any other detail really other than that, but that they were duplicating. And it's a good reminder, and we're gonna see this woven throughout the narrative here. It's a really good reminder to us again, and we've talked about this before, but this is not a, a showdown between God and a man named Pharaoh. That what's going on here is God is confronting the powers of darkness and evil that are wrapped up in this human kingdom of Egypt that are being used to keep God's covenant people People who have been promised to be the ones through whom which the redemption of all of creation would take place and they are keeping them enslaved, right? So this is a confrontation between God and the powers of darkness and evil wrapped up in this kingdom of Egypt. And here we see it in plain view, this magic and sorcery, this bending of power, not to the praise of Yahweh, but for the purposes of this kingdom of Egypt. And at this point, they've duplicated everything. But here in the third plague, the plague of gnats, 
They are unable, even though they've attempted, they are unable to duplicate the work. And so Moses and Aaron at their command, gnats just cover all of Egypt. Now, if you've ever been in, the, uh, in a situation where you've just been outside uh, and I don't know what time of year this happens or whatever, but there's these moments where you'll catch a view of the cloud of gnats. Anybody ever had that experience where it seems like out of nowhere, all of a sudden there's this cloud of gnats. Now our kids like to see that and they like to, uh, they like, just like to run through it. It's like, let's just go in it, you know, and see if we can do anything with it. I like to move the other direction because there's nothing that I can think of that would be more miserable than my face in a cloud of gnats. But imagine that haze of gnats taking over uh, everything, right? So it's just all consuming. Pharaoh uh, does not relent at this point. And so the fourth plague, and you can see these on the screen behind me, is a plague of flies. And so at Moses and Aaron's command, there is a swarming of flies. Now, one thing that's interesting is that we are gonna be reminded over and over again throughout these plagues that the people of Israel remain unaffected by the plagues that are occurring. It says in the land of Goshen, which is where the children of Israel were, uh, were living, that, the, that these plagues did not affect the land of Goshen. And here after the flies, Pharaoh again says that they can go and worship Yahweh, but then changes his mind. So the fifth plague in the fifth plague, at the command of Moses and Aaron, all of the livestock in Egypt die. Now, I want you to just, we're at plague five, and I just want you to imagine the cumulative effect here at this point, the, the burden and the weight. We've been through stretches of really bad weather, right? Have you ever experienced just a stretch of long, bad weather? Anybody live here over the summer? Okay, right? And you know the cumulative effect of an environment that is difficult to live in, right? And that's a, that's a tame thing that we went through in comparison to all of this. But just imagine as this continues to compound itself over and over and over again. And so all of the Egyptian livestock die, but the, the children of Israel, their livestock are again spared. And then the sixth plague, Pharaoh does not relent. And the sixth plague is where um, there is a dust that covers the land. And when the dust falls on people and livestock, it creates boils on their skin. And this one just sounds excruciating. What's interesting about this one, and so you've got all of livestock and people that are covered in this skin disease. And what's interesting here is that it said, now the magicians have not been able to keep up, right? They were out at plague two. But it's, what's interesting here is that it says that they can no longer stand before Moses and Aaron. And I think that's really important to pay attention to. That the sorcerers of Egypt have come to a place of being fully overcome and no longer stand before Moses and Aaron. Of course, here, Pharaoh does not relent. And so the seventh plague of hail, and it's labeled the plague of hail, but there's more in it. It says that thunder and rain and fire and hail flash continually in the land of Egypt. So anything that had not been destroyed at this point and anything that was outside is destroyed. But of course, again, there's no hail in 
Goshen. Pharaoh here actually uh, tries to appear as if he has reached a point of humility. And he says to Moses, okay, fine, I, 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 I relent. I've had a change of heart. He gives lip service to Yahweh. And Moses has figured it out by now. And Moses is like, I know that you are not for real, but fine. Moses shuts down the plague. And then again, Pharaoh does not relent. And he, he says that the children of Israel cannot go free. And so then the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, the locusts come and consume everything that was left after the hail. And scripture says that the locusts were so thick at this point that it was as if it were dark outside. The cloud of locusts was so thick that it was as if it were dark outside, which makes way for the ninth plague and the last one that we're gonna cover today, which is a plague of darkness. And so Pharaoh does not relent after uh, the locusts and there is the ninth plague of total darkness over all of the land. And it says that for three days, they could not even see one another. So it was so dark. And I don't know if you've been in an environment ever like that where the dark, where you just go, wow, it is darker than normal. But it says it was so dark that they could not even see one another. And this just reads, as we read through this over and over and over again, and we just allow the weight of what we're reading to, to, to sink onto us, to get onto us. This is, this is an incredibly heavy stretch of judgment from Yahweh. We're gonna deal with this plague separately, the 10th plague, and, and we're gonna deal with it separately. There's a lot of, to, to unpack here, but Pharaoh does not relent after the darkness. And then the final plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And God has said to Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son and you must let him go. And Pharaoh does not relent. And God said, you will not relent at the expense of your own firstborn son. And it is in the 10th plague where the firstborn of all of Egypt die. And again, we're gonna deal with that here in a couple of weeks. I wanna work on that separately. But the question that, as we read through this, the question that probably hits most of us is why? It just feels harsh and heavy. Why, God, would you put such destruction on people? What is going on here? We're gonna work through this theme. One of the things that's happening here is Pharaoh's hard heart. And I, I said it a minute ago, but we're gonna deal with that next week. It's a major player in this game, but we're gonna deal with that next week. But the question is, why the plagues? We know that God has already said that the reason why he's bringing the children of Israel out is for the purpose of what? For the purpose of worship. That the rescue is for the purpose of worship. But there's another layer that Whitney read for us in Exodus chapter seven that we need to pay attention to. And I wanna point that out to you. If you'll go to Exodus chapter seven in verse five, and it helps us understand why the plagues. It says in verse five, the Egyptians shall know. Now keep in mind, sorry, in verse four is where God says there was going to be great acts of judgment. God says that judgment is coming and that's a word that we need to hold on to, the word judgment, because that's what's going on here and we need to make sure that we try and understand what that word means. But God says in acts of judgment, I am going to confront the Egyptians. Now look at verse five. It says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from amongst them. And so tucked into that real short verse, verse five, is another layer to us understanding why judgment. And why judgment? It has to do, again, with this theme that we've covered over and over and over again, the theme of the name. And why judgment? What does God say here? So that they will know that I am Yahweh. Remember last week, we talked about how when God says, this is who I am, he demonstrates who he is by his action. That God always fulfills his promises. He doesn't hide behind a curtain. That God reveals himself in how he acts. And we talked about how we can see that most plainly in the person of Jesus. That Jesus is God saying, this is who I am. But here God says that I'm gonna act on Egypt in great acts of judgment to demonstrate that I am Yahweh. Now, this isn't the only time, verse five is not the only time that this is said in this stretch of verses. Actually, seven other times, we're gonna read a very similar phrase that points to the fact that what God is doing is God is revealing his name so that the Egyptians should know, and what we'll learn later is it's not just the Egyptians, that God has in mind everybody that is witnessing what's going on, that all people will know that I am Yahweh. And here is where we've got to start to unpack this word judgment. And we've got to look at the grace of judgment. Why is it grace here that in judgment God would reveal his name? And this is our first big point that human beings enslaved to the worship of idol gods must have a revelation of who Yahweh is. Human beings enslaved to the worship of idol gods must have a revelation of who Yahweh is. And so it is in these great acts of judgment against Pharaoh and the dark and evil power that is holding the Hebrews captive that Yahweh displays his superiority over those powers and gives opportunity for all of those who see to turn and worship Yahweh. Remember, the whole context that we're working with here is God's covenant people enslaved and the Egyptian people worshiping idol gods. And in that context, God goes head to head, Yahweh goes head to head with those rival quote unquote gods and displays his superiority for all to see. God's act of judgment on the gods of Egypt, on Pharaoh and on, on Pharaoh's household is God going head to head with dark and evil power and proving his superiority over all other things that have been worshiped. Now, what does that do? That proves his superiority, that shows that Yahweh is Lord, but for all who see it, it gives them an opportunity to stop and to surrender and to repent from the worship of other things that have been called gods and to acknowledge Yahweh for who he is. And I just wanna tell you that people enslaved to the worship of idol gods, you and me, we need a revelation of who he is that we might see that that which we worship is false and powerless and that we might turn to Yahweh. And it is only in judgment here 
that Yahweh is shown to be who he is. And what we don't often talk about when we read this narrative is the fact that on many, many, many layers, this actually proved to turn out true. It worked. There's a few verses that I wanna just point out to you that I think are powerful. In Exodus chapter eight, the magicians, the sorcerers of Egypt in verse 19, it says, they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now just take in for a minute who it is that's saying that. The sorcerers of Egypt, those who had attempted to harness dark and evil power for their own gain are saying that this is the one true God. In chapter 10, before the plague of the locusts in verse seven, we have an account of Pharaoh's servants saying to him, how long shall this man talking about Moses and Aaron be a snare to us? Let them go that they can serve the Lord their God. And so watch these pieces. These are subtle, but we've got to pick this up. You've got the magicians of Pharaoh's household saying, um, I think we need to pay attention to this. This God is legit. And then you've got the servants of Pharaoh's household saying to Pharaoh, stop, you are, you are encountering and slamming up against a power that is greater than we have ever known. Let them go, align with the purposes of Yahweh. This is the real deal. And so all of Pharaoh's household is turning to Pharaoh and going, we've got to align with the purposes of Yahweh. And yet Pharaoh remains hard-hearted but it is in judgment that Pharaoh's household says that this is the real deal. In Exodus chapter 12, we're gonna get there in a few weeks again, but this is, this is when the children of Israel are finally let go. And it says that there's, a, there's, there's Egyptians that send them out with all that they asked for that they surrender all that they have into the hands of the Israelites and say to them, go. And then scripture says, again, it's small, but we have to see it. It says that they, a mixed multitude left Egypt. What's really, really incredible about that is it tells us that it was not just ethnic Israel that left out of Egypt, that there was a mixed multitude. And who knows who all that includes? But we know, we know that that doesn't just include the Israelites, that there were those who saw the judgment of Yahweh and they aligned themselves with who he is and left with the children of Israel. And so again, why judgment? Because it is in judgment that Yahweh says, this is how you will know. I am revealing who I am. And it is in the grace of judgment that we realize that he is God and have the opportunity to align ourselves with his work. The truth is that Yahweh is committed to his plans and purposes for good. And if I would just try to summarize the word judgment as it shows up in scripture, can we just admit that that's not a word we're really comfortable with? Nobody else is kind of uncomfortable with that word judgment. Do you guys not just wake up in the morning going, I hope someone judges me? No? 
Yeah, it's a word we're a little uncomfortable with, and particularly in our culture today, we're very uncomfortable with any hint of anybody saying something to us that might hurt our feelings or might cause us to to, to draw back a little bit or might say that maybe we're out of line. We're incredibly uncomfortable. We're incredibly uncomfortable with judgment. And to be fair, often judgment is not just Judgment is harsh. Judgment is full of shame. Judgment in the hands of human beings. It lacks justice. It lacks grace. It lacks mercy. It lacks love. But justice, judgment in and of itself is a tool that a good and loving God uses throughout the story of scripture to bring creation and people into alignment with his purposes. And if I were to just kind of summarize, what are the two ways that God uses judgment? We're gonna see them both here. First, God uses judgment to hold the line and to preserve the goodness of creation and to preserve his purposes. There are times in scripture where people get so out of line that God brings judgment to say, enough is enough. The second thing that I think is a theme as it relates to judgment is that judgment comes as a wake-up call where the consequences of sin and rebellion are felt and where there's an opportunity for new life. Judgment allows for us to feel and become acquainted with the real consequences of sin that though painful, judgment is painful, it gives us the wake-up call that we need to realize that the way in which we are headed is not good and gives us opportunity to turn. As I was thinking about how to think of this in, in terms of a picture, uh, there, there, something came to mind as Becky and I were talking about what do we put in the kids' bags. And so kids, in your bag, you've got a little coloring sheet. And that coloring sheet is, uh, it, it may look a little out of place. It may look a little odd. It's a coloring sheet of, of somebody in the forest service doing a prescribed burn, right? And that, doesn't that sound like, sound like a fun kids' box kind of thing? There's a little QR code on there. I think you can go learn about prescribed fire and some fun stuff there. But here's the thing. If you've ever driven around East Texas, one of the things, it's a very familiar side. If you get out of town a little bit and just drive around on the highways and county roads, one of the things that you are gonna see, and you don't have to really look hard, is you're gonna see evidence of fire. If you look particularly closely in pine stands and in forest areas, you are going to see evidence of fire. It's a familiar sight. Interestingly enough, scripture often uses fire as a picture of judgment. God's judgment is often reflected on as and use the fire as a way of illustrating judgment. Now, What in the world are we talking about when we talk about fire and prescribed burning as it relates to judgment in Egypt? Well, here's a couple of things. First of all, that looks pretty intense, doesn't it? That looks really, really, really intense. 
And if you drive around and you look at these pine stands and in, and in the forests of East Texas, you're gonna see evidence of fire. You're gonna see black trees, depending on the base of trees. You're gonna see, depending on the timing, you're gonna see kind of some scorched earth, very much like what you see there. You're gonna see what looks like devastation. But there's three major things that happen anytime fire moves through an area. And the first is, and this is a, a wildfire prevention strategy. The first is that the things that, that let wildfires get out of control with prescribed burning are taken care of so that if there were a wildfire, it doesn't get out of control. There's a removal of that which, with that which exacerbates disaster when we do prescribed burning. But here's these other two that I think are really interesting. There's all sorts of invasive species, plants and grasses and shrubs and trees that are trying to take root in the beautiful, wonderful East Texas soil that grows timber that we buy at Lowe's. There's all sorts of things wanting to grow up around those trees that are invasive and not good. And fire, fire that comes through those areas, it reduces the, and prevents the growth of unwanted species. Fire draws a line and says no to that which is not good. Come on. We're doing it. Prescribe fire to scripture. We're doing it right here. <laughs> Think about this. The fire of judgment, just like the fire in a pine stand says no to that which is not good. And judgment in scripture, good judgment in the heart of God is never unjust. God never judges without justice. The justice of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God is always present in judgment. But judgment is a way that God draws a hard line and says no to that which is not good. To that which ultimately corrupts and destroys, there is a hard line called judgment where God says no. The second thing that fire does, or the third thing that fire does in our for us is that with the removal of that which is unwanted, there are new things that can grow. One of the coolest things you'll see in an area that has been burned is you will see the springing up of all sorts of stuff that in that seedbed has been dormant for years. And without fire, there's nothing to remove the clutter and allow it to burn. But when the fire comes through and the stuff that's no good goes away and that soil is disturbed, there's a whole native seed bank that lays underneath the soil that is allowed to spring up and grow. The fire of judgment allows for new life. Come on, I'm still preaching. The fire of judgment allows for new life. And on the surface, look, when we look at that picture, we go, whoa, that's harsh. That looks painful. There's scarring and that, look, that just looks pretty gnarly, right? 
And on the outside, we all go, ooh, judgment. I don't, I don't know about that. But I just wanna tell you, just lean into the justice and goodness of God in judgment because it is only in judgment where God draws that hard line and says no to that which ultimately corrupts his purposes. And it is only in judgment that new life is born. Think about this. None of, none of us in this room would be able to join CJ and, and proclaim the life that is in us without judgment. You with me? There is no salvation without judgment. Just like when we look at the fire and it looks so harsh, look at the tree, look at Calvary, look at the place where a perfect and righteous and innocent man was slain and crucified, beat to death and hung on a cross. That is an ugly image. It is the image of the fire of judgment, not on you and me, but on the perfectly righteous one laying down his life in perfect love that in the, in the response to that judgment, when we put our faith in him, new life is born. And there's a hard line in our lives that says, because of the judgment on the perfect son and I give my life to him, I'm saying no. There is a hard line of judgment to all that corrupts my soul, to all that corrupts who God created me to be. It is in judgment that there is an end to all that is wicked in me and it is in judgment that there is new life. Come on. And so it is here in judgment where we see both of that, but most ultimately what we're gonna see is we're gonna see this pointing to Jesus, taking on the entire weight and judgment of sin that we might be free. Now we're in a bind because I'm halfway done. <laughs> All right, so here's the second theme. We're gonna go fast. Do you guys have your Bible belts on? All right, here's the second theme, second theme. The other thing that we see here that I think we really need to pay attention to is the really dark and grim reality of the human condition. We like to pretend like sin doesn't really have consequences. We like to pretend like it's just no, it's no big deal. But the reality is here, we kind of get this unmasked look at the gravity and the weight of sin. The evil and the wickedness of Pharaoh's kingdom and the slavery and exploitation of God's people is meant to show us the devastation that sin and a rejection of Yahweh brings into the world. And I think often when we read this story, we think of Egypt and Pharaoh as this, this set aside example. Pharaoh and Egypt are somehow other than, it's just, it's just that one time thing. But can I just tell you that I believe that Pharaoh and Egypt are the normal trajectory of sin and idolatry. Listen to me. This is not a unique one-off thing. Look around the world, open your newspaper or just, I mean, you, your computer, however you, look, look around 
Egypt and Pharaoh are not some one-off moment. Egypt and Pharaoh personify the reality of idol worship, of broken human beings, of a worship of power, and all of that getting mixed up in human kingdoms. It is everywhere. Pharaoh and Egypt have not gone away. And if we're looking, Pharaoh and Egypt are right under our noses. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And my point is, this is not a one-off example. This is, this is supposed to, as we read this, this is supposed to weigh us down with the reality of the brokenness of the human condition. This is what people do to one another in the context of idol worship and sin. And what happens in the plagues, one of the things that is the most prominent theme in the plagues, if you'll read it just with kind of that Genesis view, what you're gonna see is the plagues are kind of an uncreation. In, it's in the plagues that the hard-heartedness of human beings and the worship of false gods brings darkness and destruction into God's good world. Notice, notice what happens. In the plagues, instead of order, there's chaos. In Genesis 1 and 2, what did God bring into the world? Order. But here, order descends into chaos. Here, the plagues bring a loss of dominion over the creatures. The gnats, the flies, the livestock, the frogs, it's all out of order. There's no dominion. Human beings are now subject to the wildness of creation. Notice that here in the plagues that the boundaries are erased between dominions. There is darkness when there's supposed to be light and it's all mixed up. The heavens are literally crashing down onto the earth. There's a loss of dominion. The point is that creation is no longer good. Except for in Goshen. But creation is no longer good. And church, I just wanna tell you, I know it's a heavy Sunday, but scripture does not hide us from the dark reality of sin. Human sin has real consequences in God's created order. What this confronts us with is the reality that people in power can do things that hurt people who are not. What this confronts us with is that God doesn't always protect other humans from the consequences of other rebellious people. The reality is that when sin and idolatry are present in our life, we hurt one another. And that's not an exception, that's the rule. The exception is when there's not obvious hurt. But sin causes us to lash out and hurt one another. All of these things are seen in the kingdom of Egypt. It's the reality of creation gone so wrong because of sin and evil. I'm not gonna read this because we're a little short on time and I've read it maybe a hundred times since I started as pastor, but Genesis 1, 28 through 31 tells us clearly that God puts order into creation. He establishes human beings as those people who oversee that order. And the key to the flourishing of creation is human beings in right relationship with God. And when that gets knocked off of its axis because of the failure of human worship, 
Instead of bringing goodness into creation, human beings bring chaos. And God's righteous judgment is an act of preservation. It's an act of preservation for the good world that he created and wants to make new in and through the person of Jesus. There is a point where when human beings have chosen the path of destruction over and over and over and over again, and that path of destruction leads to the bringing down of what is good in creation, God will in judgment say, no more. And if you don't believe that, turn in your Bibles, not today, but when you get home to the book of Revelation. And that is 100% what you're gonna see. And there's all sorts of people that have all sorts of ideas about exactly what the book of Revelation means. And I'll just tell you, I'm not that smart. So if you're one of those people that's figured that out, good for you. But I haven't figured it all out. Here's what I see though, and here's what I am certain of. That things go to a point where human beings continue to say, mine, 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 in creation, where we continue to turn and worship ourselves instead of Yahweh. And there comes a point, the scripture calls it the day of the Lord, where God says, enough. Curtains. And the reality of sin and brokenness and evil that human beings have chosen since the dawn of time will come crashing down in that moment. But so will the brilliance of God's new creation where all who are in him, all who are in Christ Jesus and made new will join him and rule and reign in what is new and what no longer has the blemish and the tarnish of sin and evil and brokenness. That will be a final day of judgment where God says enough and where something new is born. You guys with me? Can I just tell you, this is a hard morning. There's no pretty bow on the end of this. This is tough stuff. I want to encourage you to read it yourself. I want to encourage you to wrestle with it yourself. Dive into God's word, study it for yourself. We're gonna continue to talk about this next week. And I'll be honest, there's some mornings where I'm like, God, what in the world for invitation? <laughs> What's like the three sentences here, God? I don't. And you guys are thinking, Kendall, you never give us three sentences when it comes to invitation. <laughs> but I wanna just invite you to stand. And I think I can just bring you into kind of where I've been as I've wrestled with this. Because I'll just tell you, I read these hard things and I struggle with it. I do. I, can I just be honest about that? I struggle with that. I struggle with the pain that is in this. And God and I, have had it, we, have, we have to talk about it every time I read it. <laughs> but as I step back from it, one of the things that becomes so, so, so clear is the grace of God in my life.
that God, that God would allow that fire of judgment to come not on me, but to come on himself. That he would step into that place of judgment, that, that, that everything that I deserved, everything that I had come in, all the brokenness and wickedness that I have brought into the world, and I can tell you my story, there is a healthy amount of brokenness and wickedness that I have brought into the world. And instead of that fire of judgment consuming me, he took it on himself and then gave me an opportunity to live. If that doesn't just overwhelm us with grace, man, I don't know what does. And I just would, man, I would just, I would just say to you that there is a God that loves you that much. Those of us that have lived in it, those of us that have joined CJ in the water, we know that God. That his love for us is that great. And because of that, he is worthy of our worship. If you don't know him, he's that good. If you don't know him today, he loves you that much. And there's an opportunity for you to walk away from the brokenness and the sin that so easily entangles all of us and to step into life through faith in Jesus who has taken the entirety of our pain and sin and brokenness on himself and offered to us life and redemption. And that gift is free. It will cost you your life. It will cost you walking away from and laying everything down and calling him Lord like you saw CJ do this morning. But in the place of death, you can be free. And we're gonna have prayer partners in the back. If that's you this morning, make your way to the back. And there's some of us in here, I think, that need to respond by telling all of us. This is just, I'm kind of just talking to you now. There's some of us that need to respond by telling all of us that you have given your life to Jesus. Some of you over 25s that have not been baptized. <laughs> when are you gonna tell us? Maybe today is a day where you go, you know what? I need to get in that water. I need to be up there with CJ. I've never done that. We're seeing our college students respond with ferocity to the gospel and go, let me tell everybody, where's everybody else? Where are the rest of us? Man, if you have not stood in front of your church family and said, this is the rescue that Jesus has done for me. He is Lord of my life. If none of us know that, when will you tell us? Would you respond with baptism? Go in the back and tell somebody that you need to be baptized. Let's start that conversation. Whatever it is that God is doing in your heart and your life, here's what I would tell you. Just respond to the Spirit. Respond to the Holy Spirit. If you need to spend time up here, great. If you need to move around the room and talk to somebody, great. Let's trust the Holy Spirit and respond in obedience. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and goodness. Would you guide us now as we respond to your truth? In Jesus' name, amen.